and still we've got this torrent of uh, response to Celine Byrne. Um, amazing and incredible. Thank you so much, Celine. My aunt passed away yesterday. She too had a recent uh, terminal diagnosis. Uh, so much to be so grateful for. Um, our hearts go out to Celine today and our thoughts are with her family. Another one, I have cried for the first time since the COVID-19 situation started after hearing Celine, an amazing lady. God bless her and all her family. And um, Another one, my parents have both been diagnosed with cancer. I loved listening to, Celine, listening to Selena. When she said the name of her chosen song, Don't Stop Believing, I burst out crying. And then I danced around the kitchen like a lunatic, laughing and crying. Thank you so much. Now, uh, obviously, everybody is hoping May the 5th will see some lifting of restrictions, but I think any expectations have been well and truly dampened by the Taoiseach uh, this morning. Question is, I suppose, what, if anything, can we learn from history? Dr. Ida Milne uh, is a disease historian in Carly Car- College and is author of the ominously entitled Stacking the Coffins Influenza, War and Revolution in Ireland 1918 to 19. She's back with me in the studio. Uh, thanks indeed for coming back to us, Dr. Millen. Uh, remind us how many people in Ireland died from the Spanish flu? About 23,000, including excess pneumonias, and there was probably about 800,000 cases over 10 months or so. Yeah, and what um, similarities do you see between what's happening now with the coronavirus um, and, um, you know, how the Spanish flu was dealt with 100 years ago? Well, I suppose the, the, the major thing is, is, is that Spanish flu kind of gives an indication of the picture we would have had if we didn't have lockdown. And that hopefully we've slowed and reduced the numbers of deaths that we had. Like, I mean, those uh, 23,000 deaths mostly came in, in, in 10 months in 1918, 1919, in three waves. Uh, the first wave very mild, the second two waves much more severe, uh, particularly in Dublin. Um, so, you know, they, where there is closer... Was mingling. there an element of complacency then in the population? Um, you know, maybe things eased off a little bit and... They started to congregate or recongregate. Definitely. I mean, the, the first wave was so mild that people just thought it was something, a bit of an aberration. And um, they started mixing and playing Gaelic games and everything like that. But the second and third waves then, um, the, 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 the Gaelic games continued, but they ended up having to defer the finals just like we're going to have now until 1919. Both the senior f- football and hurling finals were deferred onto 1919. Oh, so there's a precedent yeah, for what we yeah. spoke to John Horan, the GA president, about on yeah, Monday on the programme. Yeah. Um, because teams kept getting sick and then each time Wexford, my beloved Wexford, got their four in a row, having faced a reduced um, Tipperary team who were without... Uh, and this, interestingly enough, was in hurling St- or football? That was in football. Well, indeed. Mm. So time for the yellow bellies to make a comeback on the football. But look, interestingly, um, the Irish Times of the 28th of October that year, 1918, reported that he was obviously <laughs> well past retirement age. 88, sir... Uh, Charles Cameron, he was the Tony Hoolan of his day. Uh, he had some interesting things to say yeah, uh, the about d- complacency. Dublin Me- Medical Officer of Health for Dublin Corporation. He had been working tirelessly for 50 years or so to improve the health of Dubliners. And he did. He wanted people to stay at home. He kept advising, very practical, plain advice, an expert uh, communicator. And journalists kept going to them and he kept telling people, stay at home until you're well better. Stay out of circulation. Too many people are trying to go out and about. I think that particular... And the particular quote is... If the public would only wake up to the seriousness of the condition Mm. of things and avoid meeting in crowds, the risk of spreading the infection might be minimised. But uh, clearly the the advice was, was largely ignored. 
Yes, I, th- I think so. I think that as time went on, uh, during the very peak weeks when, when, when um, very many people within a community would be sick, people would stay at home for fear of, of, of getting it. But once um, the peak would pass in a local area, they'd go out and about again and obviously cause more peaks. And then as now, uh, the medical profession were particularly badly affected, were they? Yeah, particularly the poor law uh, dispensary doctors, the GPs of the day. Uh, the, the, the poor law um, dispensary service covered 70% of the population. They were the chief interaction uh, the public would have had with it, provided a free, free service. They did 100,000 extra house mm-hmm. home visits in 1918-19. Yeah. And a lot of them went down. And then the replacements for them went down. And then the replacements for the replacements went down. So doctors actually got a great bargaining power during the flu. They were able to ask for higher and higher locum fees but it wasn't a very pleasant time for them because a lot they of them died. didn't live to spend it. No, um, no. Now, the big difference, I suppose, or one of them between then and now, unlike the coronavirus, uh, the people over 65 seem to be largely immune, were they, to the Spanish flu? Yes, it's very curious. Usually um, flu would impact, the seasonal flu would impact most on older people and on the very young in those days and uh, the very young were a very vulnerable sector of the population then. Uh, but this, the, the older people seem to have some immunity acquired from an earlier flu and earlier than the 1890s uh, mm-hmm. Russian pandemic. Uh, so it was like 25, 35 year olds particularly badly hit and always, pre- or not always, but often previously strong people. Yeah, and I suppose given that the Spanish flu came at us in waves, uh, would you re- take the view that we, we need to bear that in mind uh, when we're talking about or looking for the relaxation restrictions at this stage? You'd have to bear it in mind, I, I think. I mean, the, obviously, we're so locked down that when when we're loosened up, we will see more spread within the community. Uh, but on the other hand, people who've studied loads, all the flu pandemics since the 1500s, um, David Morans, he said that every uh, an, um, pandemic has to be lived forwards and understood backwards. So we, can, we won't know until it's over. It has to be lived forwards and understood backwards. backwards, Yeah, Yeah. Um, And how was the Spanish flu eventually conquered, Ida? Um, It really became everybody who, they they suggested somewhere between one third and half the world's population got it. Uh, In Ireland, probably a little bit more than one fifth of the population got it. So really, everybody who was going to get it had encountered it in some way and um, there was immunity within the population. It stayed circulating, I understand, until uh, the 1958, the next pandemic. Yeah. And then it was replaced by the H2N2 uh, that caused that pandemic. Now, I understand you you see things as having a big, um, one of the big impacts of the Spanish flu wasn't so much on medicine or politics, but on the lives of individuals and families at the loss of loved ones and also the changed economic circumstances. Yeah, and I think the stories you've had on particularly today, you know, all those people who are suffering the loss. Um, with Spanish flu, because it particularly hit young adults, it often meant that the breadwinner and the family or the parent of children and sometimes two parents of children died. Uh, So it caused a lot of impacts, not just emotional, but economic for them as well, because the the, the family income would be gone. Uh, Often in those days, um, the family home might go with a job. So that would be lost as well. Yeah. And um, the the grief of that must be uh, must be extraordinary. Um, I mean, 23,000, as you say, uh, families now. um, 
Tell me a little bit more about some of the doctors who worked on this. I mean, the GPs as of the day, as you said, there was a there was somebody down in Bray who did an awful lot of house calls. Oh, Dr. Rafferty in Bray, he was he was a bit of a legend, and I think his when I went to talk um, to local history societies there, they had they had stories about him. He did live through it, which was great. Um, he um, kept complaining to the Irish Times and to the local government board that you know that he just couldn't get enough locums, and he t- talked of one day in um, I think it was November um, nineteen. 18, where he, uh, if he had spent 15 minutes in every household he had been into, he would have been working for 18 hours. Good and that happens. would be out without a long time for travel or uh, and that would be seeing five or six patients in each household because the whole house would be down with it. Did he succumb to it in the end himself? No, he didn't. He, I found out recently that he did survive. I did see in one newspaper report that he had been ill with it. Yeah. And, and I, I was curious and I asked and I was told he had survived and I suppose into part the 50s, I think. Your yeah. research as a historian uh, for stacking the coffins, you wouldn't necessarily have spoken to survivors, but you might have spoken to the children of survivors. Oh, I did speak to survivors. I spoke to people who were five up to 15 years of age. One lady was 106, uh, Kathleen McMenamin from, from um, uh, Rathmullen in County Donegal. But the, my, one of my nearest neighbours was actually five and he survived it, Tommy Christian, fabulous interviewee. And he sp- said, you'd never forget um, the pain in your throat. And he told me about the doctor coming at three o'clock in the morning and talk, said an awful lot of local people had really bad chests out of it. And again, that's something that has implications for now too, that people will be sick for a long time afterwards. Extraordinary stuff, uh, Ida. Thank you so much indeed for coming in. Dr. Ida Milne, historian in Carlow College and author of Stacking the Coffins, Influenza War and Revolution in Ireland uh, in the Ireland of uh, 1918 to 1990. Thank you indeed. Um, lots of reaction, as I said, to, uh, to Celine, but also reaction to our earlier interview with Valerie Moore. My heart goes out to Valerie and all the staff of Oakdale. My dad, Michael, spent the last year of his life there. It is such a wonderful place. They are just outstanding people. I can't thank them enough. They always uh, went above and beyond for the residents and their families. Dad, passed away in October last. Well, thank you indeed. And thanks to everybody who contributed to today's programme. Uh, in news headlines, the Taoiseach Lee of Rantcar says he hopes to be able to set out the different steps to reopen the country and ease COVID-19 restrictions by the weekend. He also said the government is considering advising people to wear face coverings, as he described them, in public. But there was yet to be agreement on the issue within the scientific community. The leaders of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have sent a document to the Green Party in which they agree to enact a new climate a change bill within 100 days of forming a government and put a net zero emissions target for 2050 into law. That is our lot for today. Thank you for listening. The programme produced by the series producer Tara Campbell. Uh, other public servants working on your behalf today were researcher Neil Lyons on sound, Jamie Doyle, our producers working from home, Deirdre Lyon and Regina Henley. Over now to Ronan Collins. <laughs> 